will get to the next depths of insight and obviously they can only lead to one thing and that's Nibbana Nibbana a word that is used to describe a certain inner reality so first we'll have a look at the steps we got as far as the disenchantment I have already actually mentioned the next step because it sometimes comes before and sometimes after disenchantment in the person's mind it is usually listed after and it's called desire for deliverance and it's the next step the next step after the disenchantment brings this very strong determination up that one doesn't really want to continue with what one has done so far now that can very likely happen before the disenchantment is complete it certainly comes to its completion afterwards now you can also probably imagine that each of these steps can arise in the mind superficially or mildly and that one needs to deepen them again and again now when one has and this holds true for any insight at all be it small, middling, large important or not even very important any insight which one deems sufficiently um, important to act upon has to be resurrected in the mind over and over again once will not do our minds are so habituated to the opposite which I have mentioned many times our way of thinking which when you look at it closely is absurd that it's not that easy to get out of that habit just by recognizing it once won't do so any insight that may have come to you during this course bring them up over and over again while walking around while sitting down before starting to meditate after finishing the meditation doesn't matter whenever because insights while they don't get lost and you can bring them up again and again will only have the real um, strength of leading out of all dukkha when they become habit of mind and habit of mind at this point in time is the opposite not the inside one but the the me habit so when it becomes habit of mind then it is a um, no question anymore that it leads out and this is what this particular step then um, also signifies that the habit of mind has become strong enough to be disenchanted with whatever there is and may it look ever so pretty and be as cute as anything and taste as good as it could whatever it may be the 
attachment and the clinging does not arise anymore. And therefore, the desire for deliverance is the strongest mind direction. So, having a feeling or a thought in the mind, let's say a thought in the mind, that would be nice to get out of all dukkha. That's fine. And uh, if I have to give up this me notion, well, all right, then I'll give it up. Well, that's all very nice, but I won't do. It just is a slight beginning. And it can very well remain as a thought process which one remembers at certain times only, like in a course, or if somebody happens to talk about it, or if we pick up a Buddhist book. It isn't our own inner reality yet. So, if you remember on this, this there, were, there was a step, a second step, which said to recognize arising and ceasing. And the fourth step is that that is recognized spontaneously without having to direct the mind towards it. And this spontaneous arising of seeing arising and ceasing, that spontaneous understanding has to come with all these characteristics. These recognize spontaneously that any clinging or any desire is only going to lead to more dukkha. One doesn't have to be reminded, one doesn't have to read a book about it, one doesn't have to have anybody there that keeps on saying the same things over and over again. One knows. And that is the point now when the practice picks up momentum. The practice gets... One can actually feel within oneself that there is a big change and it isn't just feeling a little happier because that too is impermanent. The big change is that the direction of mind is established. Deliverance out. One knows one is on, one is on the way out. So with that strength then, and these are all strong um, mind realizations, starting with the disenchantment from now on. These have to be extremely strong ones to really make an impact. And when they start, and they are only mild, that's fine. But that's when they need the support system of constant remembering. So the next one, after this, is then dispassion. And dispassion is such a momentous and impactful understanding in the mind that it is it is called the first super mundane experience. It's not the enlightenment experience just yet but the dispassion is so strong that it is beyond our mundane experiences. And therefore it's a first step into the super-mundane. Now the super-mundane does not mean that we then 
are no longer human and cannot attend to the duties and responsibilities that humans have we can do it much better because we see the futility of becoming identified and therefore upset or clinging to them so the dispassion which arises at this time means or can arise it doesn't have to none of this has to happen these are only steps on the way which are the progression of mind it isn't necessarily so that this must happen one's got to do something about it one's got to first of all use every insight in order to make it real within oneself one's own um, inner being and then wish to continue and have that determination to regard the world as nothing but a temptation for a worldling so if this arises this dispassion it means complete equanimity which is the state of mind which I described once already in the five noble powers that one sees automatically the undesirable in the desirable that one sees automatically desirable in the undesirable sees both in both and then of course the arahant the enlightened one never has to try sees it anyway never has any desirable or undesirable reactions anyway it, it, it's neither this nor that but for the person that has gained the state of dispassion spontaneously seeing both in both now that is a state of mind which means it's even the mind is even equanimity is even mindedness and this evenness must not be confused and I'm repeating that with indifference it's not indifference indifference is a cold turning away so that one doesn't get bothered it's not that at all it's seeing that all that is existing in the world has both characteristics desirable and undesirable it can be pretty and nice looking, tasting, feeling all of that but it is at the same time impermanent prone to decay and death and does not have only the factors in it which make it appealing it has also the unappealing now because of that we get balance in the mind we do not dislike the, the, uh, the desirable it's a balanced mind and the balanced mind not to be shaken unshaken mind the mind that can of course see much clearer because a mind which gets shaken is like uh, compared of course always to a water pond where the waves are going up and down one can't see into the depths of it until 
the surface of the water has calmed down again, has become even and one can look through it to the bottom. As long as the mind goes up and down with what it likes and dislikes, that depth cannot be recognized. But then, at this stage where dispassion becomes the foremost quality of mind, it can go into depth. Foremost quality of mind by spontaneously and always recognizing that there is nothing that is worthwhile getting attached to. Nothing. Now, obviously, the, and this is said over and over again, the jhanic states of mind through meditation are an enormous help. In fact, they're indispensable because not only are they compensation for our sensual desires, but they are also the smoothing of the mind which is in its ordinary uh, state always moving about from what it likes to what it dislikes. So it smooths the mind, it also gives it that strength and it gives it that quiet to see properly. There are other jhanas which I haven't described yet which are designed to give insight and they of course, and I will describe them, they of course are even more helpful for this dispassioned state because they show a totally different reality to us. And since it isn't just imagination or a storyline or uh, something we have to believe in, but it is one's own personal experience, it makes an enormous impact and helps the mind very markedly to have this kind of equanimity because the reality which is seen is no longer of separate entities. But I'll explain those states in detail. I just wanted to mention that they are extremely helpful for this state. Now, because this is called the first super mundane state, you can recognize that this state of dispassion is very advanced on this progress of insight. It isn't just something that one can want. It's very nice to want it, but it won't happen. It's something one has to work for. With the meditative practice, at one, at one angle, and the other side of it is that we actually use our mindfulness to recognize all the preceding stages in depth, not just superficially. The equanimity of the mind, which is that same thing that dispassion would denote. In Pali, dispassion is viraga. Now, vi is the 
the non-syllable. There are two non-syllables. One is a, and one is re, and on uh, one is ni. There's three of them. So enraga is the English rage, raging, non-raging. The mind doesn't rage anymore. It doesn't have that quality anymore. It's become quiet and calm. Not just in its expression outwardly, but in its feeling mode inwardly. Because it has seen quite clearly that there is nothing here in the world that would warrant any raging, any passion. Nothing. Nothing at all. And passion, passion of course, includes the wanting and the not wanting, both. Obviously, the Buddha also uh, made statements to his um, followers and to his monks and nuns of things that they were doing wrong and that they had to correct. It wasn't that there is a person that has this uh, uh, got to these stages is not a person who will now agree to everything. That's not what it's all about. It's not being agreeable. A person who likes to be agreeable is usually one that's afraid of having any um, con controversy and not being able to keep their mind in order when the controversy arises. The Buddha was not at all agreeable. He told people exactly what they were doing wrong in order, out of compassion, in order to help them to get enlightened. So it's not that. It is the mind's ability to stay on an even keel no matter what. Now if you can think about that for a moment just as it's being said you will probably be able to think of a number of occasions which could arise in your mind in your life, sorry where your mind wouldn't be able to stay on an even keel like when loved ones die whatever the mind which has this passion has so much insight that it stays on an even keel no matter what. It has no longer this understanding that things are mine. It hasn't got anything that's mine. It looks as if it has. I mean, a person who's enlightened also doesn't wear a badge. I mean, they look just the same as anybody else. And they also behave the same as anybody else. But the mind in that person and the feelings stay on an even keel. And that has to be understood from the standpoint of the inside, not trying to remove oneself from those things which could upset one. Now, some people are quite capable of doing that. They are very uh, efficient in removing as many unpleasantnesses from their lives as possible until, of course, they learn they're desperate and then they can't remove anything. But they might even be lucky. They might fall asleep and not wake up. That's also possible. But we can't count on that sort of thing. So the removal of the unpleasantness is not the answer. It's not insight. It's 
the overshadowing of dukkha. It's not wanting to see it. You know, moving, the movement overshadows dukkha. We don't see it then. So this passion is then a mind which has already gained insight into an absolute reality. From having been mindful enough to see the universe and all that it contains, which primarily concerns oneself, because that's the one that wants, is the one that's in the middle of the universe, always, everybody is in the middle of that, has seen this whole thing as nothing but a fluctuating movement, all in flux, completely changeable, without any substance, which could be hung on to, and which would provide any kind of safety. And having seen it like that, there's nothing to get upset about anymore, worried about, or to clung to. There's nothing to be clung to. Nibbana is also described by the Buddha as non-clinging. That has to be that. Now that means that such a person does whatever they have been doing before, nothing changes, but nothing is any more seen as having an impact because it isn't absolute, it's all relative. Relatively speaking, we are all different people. Each one with a different name, different age, different belongings, different outlook, different viewpoints, different ideas, ages, all of that. That's relatively speaking. Absolutely speaking, nothing like it. All energy particles coming together and falling apart. Nothing there. The whole thing a complete illusion. Everybody knows, I presume everybody knows, that our scientists found decades ago that there isn't a single solid building block in the whole of the universe. So, what do we do with this kind of thing? We say, oh, aren't they clever? And they themselves think, aren't we clever? But they have no idea that they belong also in the universe and also have not a single solid building block within themselves. And because this is not accepted and not thought about, it's accepted but on a theoretical level, a person that doesn't practice with diligence will never come to this state of dispassion. And some people will say, who haven't practiced much yet or haven't practiced at all, they don't like to come there. It sounds boring. It's, um, uh, everything is the same. It's like a gray desert. Well, one can only say that, of course, if one has never experienced it. The, um, the ordinary kind of mind that hasn't practiced is more like an inferno. Sometimes the fire go is, is raging and other times it goes out completely and uh, then it comes on again and then goes out again. So, and the mind which is even-minded 
dispassionate. Thus, neither has the inferno, nor does it have the desert. The desert is the one of dislike. That mind has what the Buddha called a pleasant abiding. It can live at ease. Because there's no fear anymore. There's no fear of loss. Because there is nothing that can be lost. Because it's all relative, only what we can lose. So this passion is the imminent stepping stone towards Nibbana. Now obviously that's very far and um, an advanced stage of insight and may only be theoretical at this point in time, but seeing that we have a complete discourse of the Buddha, we must also recognize that this is how the Buddha taught. In the first instance, he talks about the very simple matters of behaving oneself properly. And as the discourse progresses, over and over it happens exactly the same way, it goes all the way to Nibbana. And he shows quite clearly how one step is the cause for the next. We can't leave anything out. Sometimes there have been schools of thought in our lifetime, and of course in the Buddha's lifetime also, where it was thought that what could leave moral behavior out. It's old-fashioned. It's not applicable. Who wants morality? That went on for quite a while. Well, it's changed again. People have a certain understanding that it is necessary. The Buddha used it on the way to Nibbana as one of the stepping stones. And all of this, all of this, so mindfulness, every bit of it. Now, without very strong mindfulness, which gets sharpened through meditation, none of these steps will arise because our optical illusion is very strong. It's not only our mind habit. Our optical illusion tells us that we are all separate entities. And we look at somebody or something and say, that's mine. And since nobody else says it's mine, it must be true. But if somebody else says it's mine, we've got a tragedy. And the whole thing is only a mind-made illusion. And since these are very strong, mindfulness has to be also very strong. Mindfulness, the, the simple knowing, without the explanations in the mind, because our explanations are based on our ideas and wishful thinking and our me-illusion, which provides us with greed and hate. Dispassion must come to the point of fairly completeness. It has to be complete, because it has to include dispassion towards oneself. As long as there is no dispassion towards oneself, it isn't strong enough for the next step. Dispassion does not mean disliking oneself. 
on the contrary dispassion means recognizing that there's nobody sitting there standing there or lying there or whatever it's just a process of mental and physical movement the body is constantly moving the heart is pounding the breath is going the blood is going around the cells are disintegrating and coming back together every seven years we have a new set of cells if we are mindful enough we could feel that couldn't we that they're all falling apart and coming back together and our mind is constantly moving it can't stand still even when in the jhanas and this is also an important aspect of the jhanas that they give a foretaste of a quieter mind but even in the jhanas the mind still has to be there to know it and the knowing even just the knowing is also coming together and falling apart but so quickly that it's very difficult to notice until one becomes very mindful but it is a much quieter knowing and therefore far more pleasant but again that also has its limitations it also doesn't last even those states don't last now having had those states make the mind capable of recognizing more clearly that there is nothing satisfactory because this is just about the best thing one's ever had and yet too it doesn't stick around while it has a residual effect it doesn't stick around in its whole strength so the dispassion has to be so strong that there is this understanding in the mind that all dukkha arises out of our obsession with the clinging to this person me never mind all the other stuff maybe we've already with this dispassion or disenchantment given up all the belongings they're not important anymore doesn't mean that we have to throw them away they're just not important anymore and we've already given up the idea that we can actually own another person that they've got their own karma to live out maybe we have done all that but the last thing that has to be done which is the most important step is the giving up of the clinging to this person that has done all that me now the person who's done all that's gone a, a far away already pretty good practitioner pretty good meditator pretty good what pretty good process that's all it is but we have to see it know it feel it and be willing to give up the last vestige of hanging on so there are several ways that we need to direct the mind the first thing is that we actually understand that body and mind are compounded that means 
they consist of bits and pieces. Now we were using the parts of the body to become aware of that. That's not so difficult. Everybody knows that they carry all these bits and pieces around. And the parts of the mind, we were using the four aggregates. If we go by Abhidhamma, we can come to 89 bits and pieces, or 24, or whatever, or 56, all sorts of ways of dividing the mind up. But it all boils down to those four aggregates that we've been talking about. So we have an actual knowledge through our own experience that the mind is also compounded. It has parts. And this compounding of the mind goes so far that it arises and ceases. So it isn't one solid thing. And the body that looks so solid is certainly not one solid thing. If you take two bits or one bit out and don't get a spare part in time, we've had it. I mean, it just isn't solid. It's compounded. It's got bits and pieces. So these bits and pieces of the, of the body, easy. Bits and pieces of the mind, just as easy to see. Because... What we experience, and we need to have that trigger experience of the sense consciousness, shows us quite clearly, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, thinking, shows us clearly that the mind is a reactor. It reacts to the trigger of the sense consciousness. And when we have seen that, and this is so important that I think I've already said it at least three or four times, maybe six times, I don't know, but it is such an important aspect of mind. Only then do we recognize the fact that there's nobody sitting in there. There isn't a little girl or a little boy looking out through the eyes and doing it all in there. It's an absurd idea, isn't it? Everybody's got it. It's totally absurd and everybody has it. There's me sitting in there doing all that. And in reality, it's nothing but the sense consciousness being reacted to. Just like the uh, blood reacts to the pumping of the heart, just like the body reacts to the breathing so it stays alive, all these things are bits and pieces reacting to each other. The mindfulness which has gone ahead uh, in the former stages and st uh, that we have discussed must have been so strong that we see that so clearly that we don't have to think I have to give myself up because we know already there isn't any myself to be given up. And if we know that, then of course, I mean, there's, there's nothing, nothing uh, great to do then. So this is why we have at this point the understanding of the compounding, everything is made of bits and pieces, and of the conditioning. The condition which underlies the existence of this, 
So we have all sorts of conditions which are necessary to keep this thing going. And we can't rely upon them. Now the thing that keeps this body going is a condition that there is no great um, hurt or wound inflicted upon it which or sickness inflicted upon it which will make it die and disappear that all the bits and pieces keep on working together so we have a condition over which we have absolutely no jurisdiction there's a condition there which needs to be fulfilled before this body can actually continue the only reason we think that we have something to do with that condition is because so far up to this moment in time still being alive the condition has been fulfilled day after day so we forget about the fact that not only do all the bits and pieces in this body have to continue functioning which they will refuse to do one day they just will not do so anymore also there has to be no accident to it there has to be everything has to be in order and because even though we don't want to know about it subconsciously we know that therefore we are afraid and recognizing this fact that fear of course is dukkha and because of this we of that fear we are experiencing actually constant dukkha other than we just happen to distract ourselves or become really concentrated in meditation because that is there we must recognize that this fear is intrinsically connected to the inability to be in charge of conditions the conditions just are not our of our making now the same thing applies to the mind it is also conditioned it has conditions which have to be there in order to keep it going first of all the brain has to be in order which also can happen anytime something falls in your head and you've had it brain doesn't function anymore <laughs> and our senses need to function in order to have the sense consciousness there are all sorts of conditions which are necessary particularly that the base remains in order so the base being the brain and we do know people who are being kept alive even though their brain is dead which is uh, absolutely absurd I, I consider this practically a criminal undertaking so these conditions that are necessary are fraught with fear because we can't make sure and because we can't make sure we can also look at things outside of ourselves and see the same thing now let's say a broom in order to work it has to have a condition of having all its bits and pieces in order but it will not remain like that it's obvious that decay will set in so it has to be renewed and not only does it have to be renewed it also has to be cleaned 
otherwise it doesn't work anymore. So whether it's us or a broom is no difference. Everything decays, everything has to be cleaned, everything has to be renewed. It's a complete circle that we actually go through every single day. And most people never pay attention to that. And this one day that we live in, where we usually don't see any of this, can be thought of as a whole lifetime. We can see that we get up in the morning and we're fairly fresh. We're young. The day is young, we're young. And then the cleaning starts. And the excreting. And then putting the new food in in order to keep this body going. The conditions have to be there. Got to put new food and drink in, otherwise it won't keep going. And then the body has to do some little bit of exercise to walk from here to there, otherwise it's going to deteriorate completely. And then it has, then the mind has to start thinking, because it's got to do things. Now, obviously, it has to go and do some work, so make a living or do something. Maybe it has to go shopping. It has to think what to do, what to get. And then has to eat again. And then maybe after the eating has to have a little rest. And then it does some more work. And then it eats again. And then maybe it has to excrete again. In between, of course, it had to get rid of the liquids, had to urinate several times. And then it goes and has a bit of distraction, looks at some books or television or something. And goes to bed and has to recover again from its energy for the body. Now the mind, of course, never recovers its energy unless it gets totally concentrated. And then the next morning the whole thing starts again. Now in that process there's absolutely even anything new and we have to fulfill the conditions all the time to stay alive. And some people don't find that so easy. Now, in an affluent society, it's not that difficult. But there are many more non-affluent societies than the affluent ones. Many more. Far more millions of people in the, in the other societies. And they find it extremely difficult every single day to get the conditions to actually keep going with the body and the that body difficulty of course also affects the mind ability and so their mind activity is very reduced because they use it strictly for keeping the body going now we can at least uh, have some distractions can listen to some music or look at some paintings or read a book we don't have to try and get keep the body going all the time it's fairly easy for us but what else can we do well, we can be helpful to other people. That's another possibility, which also helps us on this path. But this constant from morning to night, also to see, we can also see in the evening that we die a small death. We don't know anymore in the nighttime what goes on. Even sometimes people have nightmares, but of course, usually people don't know what goes on. So that's a small death. And then the whole thing starts all over again. Again and again and again. 
And sometimes we have very nice distraction. We meet some nice people, we have a long journey, we see a lot of things, but what is it? Sense contact. Sense consciousness triggering the mind. And of course, in order to stay alive, not only does the body need the food, the mind does too. So the sense consciousness is the food for the mind. And that food is changed, of course, when we have the meditative absorptions, but it's still food for the mind. So what we're doing, we're having a thing here that's got to be fed. And it has to excrete. The mind has to get rid of the rubbish also, just like the body. And that's when dreams and nightmares could, could happen. It is said that an arahant doesn't drink. There's no rubbish to get rid of. So this one day shows us that circular movement of our lives, life after life, day after day, week after week. And because we don't pay attention we, to these things, we think that we could do something during the day which would make it pleasant and interesting. And so we do through our sense consciousness. Just as we like to eat nice food, we also put as much nice things into the sense consciousness. But we are dependent upon conditions for that. We can't make sure. Sometimes the sense consciousnesses and the sense contacts are very unpleasant. Even though we have removed as much as we can, it still doesn't guarantee anything. So we have to see this quite clearly that not only is it compounded but it's also conditioned and because we have no jurisdiction over the condition and because the compounding means all the bits and pieces have to be in order we are constantly in danger of falling apart every single moment we are in that danger because it hasn't happened yet we like to forget about it now when we see it like that we no longer see this person there and also we recognize the dukkha in its fullest extent of being compounded and conditioned. We really see it, that it cannot ever be satisfactory. There's no way, as clever as we might be, as careful as we might be, as having removed as much of the unpleasantnesses from our life as we could possibly do, we cannot remove the bits and pieces that we consist of because if we did we wouldn't exist and we cannot make sure of the conditions which are prevailing and that's where of course we're having seen that we recognize the fact that the Buddha said yes but there is something which is uncompounded and unconditioned and therefore does not have any dukkha in it now obviously at this point we don't know what that's like but we have, meanwhile, we wouldn't get that far if we hadn't actually got complete confidence in the teaching. We would never get this far because the heart wouldn't be engaged. The heart will has to be in it. Logical mind is all very well, but logical mind can turn everything around and say the opposite. Very easy. No problem. And the more intelligent people are, the easier they can do it. A person that isn't terribly intelligent, a little more simple, will probably see one side only. 
But a very intelligent person might even see three sides or four and be able to argue on all of them quite uh, efficiently. So mind, logical mind, rational mind is not enough. Heart has to be in it. And by this time, if we've got this far, there is complete faith and confidence in the teaching because we have been proving it ourselves. We are the Dhamma. We are the Dhamma, the phenomena, the Nanicca, Dukkha, We are all that. So by this time we've proved it all. So we will also be quite convinced that if the Buddha said there is something that's uncombounded and unconditioned where one can get out of all Dukkha, that must be something like that there. And so then comes the time when the mind directs itself towards that deliberately I've said this many times and I'll say it again whatever we want to do we've got to direct the mind towards it otherwise we won't do it meditation is science of mind the um, whole pathway of the Buddha it's a scientific psychological explanation of what a human being is and therefore a certain amount of knowledge is necessary not just information I've already explained that a certain amount of knowledge is needed as we need it for all sciences but also the experimentation a science without a repeatable experimentation is still in its baby stages it's not accepted it has to be experiential and here we have the possibility of doing that so this understanding that we can direct our minds towards something else whatever we want to do we've got to direct our mind if we want to go and take a nap We've got to direct the mind towards going to the bed, lying down, closing one's eyes, and stopping all that discursive thinking. We've got to do even that for taking a nap. Well, how much more do we have to direct our mind if we want to reach Nibbana? Authorical question, isn't it? So, if we have seen that the other stuff that we are compounded of and are, are consisting of is unsatisfactory, and we have seen it by this time, then in meditation the mind goes in that direction. I want to experience the uncompounded and unconditioned state. Now for that, in order to do that, it's necessary to have excellent concentration. That's why we sit and sit and sit. And eventually everybody gets excellent concentration. If they sit often enough, if they direct their mind towards that, if they don't get sidetracked with all the worldly things that appear to be so important. It's just an appearance. It's like child play. Children think that their building blocks and their sandcastles are very important. And they are to them. If you go along there on the beach and you step on a child's sandcastle, you get screaming and, and uh, 
terrible reaction to that naturally it's a child's very important plaything but if we ever want to grow up and we do have that ability we'll have to recognize that the world is made up of toys and we are always inventing new ones because we get bored with the old ones there's lots of new toys around there's um, I mean the telephone has been in existence for a long time I don't know exactly when it was invented but nowadays the things look like absolutely wild toys having buttons that nobody ever knows what to do with and, and, and it was perfectly alright to dial we still call the thing a dial tone but nobody dials so they made new toys computers and uh, laser beams and, and God knows what missiles and, and satellites and, and uh, I don't even know all the words and I mean they're all over the place and it's all extremely important but why? why is it important? what could it possibly mean to us? so we finally had somebody walk on the moon I mean it's a big achievement from technology isn't it? has it made anybody happy? I couldn't imagine I mean it was a very interesting television uh, program I saw it. it was extremely interesting I thought I wasn't seeing right and I said yeah yeah he's walking on the moon wonderful now what? so what? has it changed anything? so you go and do your job well what does it do? give your paycheck that's all has to that's all that we have to do that we have to eat because we're keeping the thing alive but what is important about it all? we get sidetracked into this world because we see it all the time it's our optical illusion we don't see Nibbana you can't see it with your eyes but we can feel all the dissatisfaction inside we can see all the problems we can see them with our inner eye why don't we believe our inner eye? why do we always believe this outer eye? this outer eye is very very um, deficient it can't do anything much and as you get older it can do even less you know anybody over what 50 says where are my glasses? You know? well I can't see so why do we believe this all the time? why don't we look inside and see what's going on in there? and if we do then we will delib deliberately uh, have the direction of mind going toward that which promises something else now the concentration which is need needed for that has to come from regular practice regular practice means that we do it and do it and do it don't get sidetracked and recognize it as the most important thing there is that we could possibly do in this life here we have come to a point where the logical understanding doesn't do a thing anymore it's got to be concentrated mind because the Nibbanic moment has to be an experience and it has to be an experience of a mind which is totally one-pointed otherwise it can't happen so here all the thinking and all the understanding and all the uh, in scholastic um, writings don't do anything anymore they only can only explain what one 
what is possible to explain, but it doesn't change one's life at all. So here the concentration has to happen. And of course the jhanas are the preparation for that. Without them the concentration is highly unlikely to happen, although there are instances as I said before, where a spontaneous realization has happened. Ramana Maharshi was one of those that I know about, and probably far more than one knows about. But these are spiritual geniuses whose uh, former um, karmic uh, resultants have had this impact. For most of us, for all of us, I would say, that isn't so. We've got to learn to concentrate. Now, when we have the jhanas as our um, base, so that the mind has that concentration, from a practical standpoint, there are two ways to explain what needs to be done. One is the actual doing, and the other one is more the understanding. Or maybe I'll explain the understanding first. Yes, because that might, might be helpful. I'll explain that first. It is explained in the commentaries in this way. It's a simile. It's very interesting, and some of you have heard it before, but it's a very um, picturesque simile. The, the world of samsara and the world of nibbana are very often depicted as being on two different banks of a river. This bank here, where we are, that's the world of birth and death, of problems and dukkha, of acceleration and depression, of going up and down. That's samsara. That's on this bank. And then Nibbana is on the other bank. And although we might even be able to look across, we have no idea what it's like because we haven't been there. And there's a river in between. This is a simile that's usually used. And the Dhamma is very often called a raft, which can take one across that river. But the river is a river of life, and it is quick-flowing, and it also has a lot of rapids in it. So most people are dithering around on this side of the river, on the bank, and saying, look, it's very pretty over there. Isn't it nice? and uh, they don't dare get into this river because there are rapid, rapids and there are waves and there's uh, sharks and there's all sorts of things. <laughs> <laughs> so they're afraid of getting into the river. Yeah, sharks, not a bad expression. I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> so the, um, uh, the simile for getting across is this that the, there's a, a tree growing at the, on this bank of the river, on this side. And it has a very uh, strong and long branch which is hanging over the river. And there is a rope tied to that branch. Now, the branch is called the branch of selfhood. And the rope is the rope of materiality. And with the momentum of practice, one starts running towards this rope that's hanging down there, just like a kid would do that wants to swing across. And with that, 
momentum of the swing that one has from continued practice. One lets this rope swing across and lets go on the other side and falls down on the other bank. One has let go of the branch of selfhood and the rope of materiality, completely letting go, no clinging anymore. And as one falls down on the other side, on this uh, bank on the other side, of first, of course, one is unsteady, because as one falls down, one can't find one's uh, feet right away, so one wobbles a bit. But one gets one's uh, steadiness back quite right away, and then can walk away from this raging river with all its difficulties in it. Now that's the understanding part of it. Now obviously that physically we can't do that. I mean we can, but it wouldn't do a thing for us. And um, we mightn't even be able to do it anymore depending on age. But this is the understanding that the selfhood which is a thought in mind that I'm me and the rope which is the actual body that we have that we can let go. Now from a practical standpoint how to do this has to happen and there are again there's a preliminary stage and there is a complete stage now some people don't need to do the preliminary stage but most people do it is not explained in that way so it is a preliminary stage which is well it's very helpful having heard this simile and everything being equal, one actually wants to do this. One can, for instance, think of oneself as being immersed, and all this after the jhanas, being immersed in this self-illusion, um, which creates dukkha all the time, and therefore wants to give it up, and wants to actually return to what we could call the source, the matrix of existence, the primordial ocean. Any word will do. It doesn't matter. No word is even better because it doesn't make a picture. But people who are inclined to have that kind of visionary um, thought system may have that, may have such pictures. And by letting go of this idea of self and being willing to not be this person anymore, one can actually have this experience of drowning oneself in the primordial ocean, in the all, in that what is, no matter what you call it, any religion has some name for it which is a preliminary experience. It's a willingness not to be me, but to return to that which is the source of being and not be. Now that's preliminary. That has to be. That kind of thing has to be as a preliminary step. But then the actual step that happens and maybe without the preliminary or with the preliminary, it doesn't matter. 
is that after having been concentrated in meditation and having agreed to the fact that this is not satisfactory because it's compounded and conditioned and wanting that which is unconditioned the mind goes in that direction where nothing moves I call it the still point other people also call it that the Buddha didn't um, this is a word we, we have sort of coined a point where there's absolutely no movement in the mind there's nothing arising and nothing ceasing and where of course the I illusion is totally eliminated because it can't arise now this is one mind moment only and this is the happening which has then two mind moments following it which are called the fruit moment the happening of the still point is the path moment maga m-a-g-g-a the two moments following are pala p-h-a-l-a in pali fruit fruit means result and the result is invariably an extreme feeling of relief as if one has shed an enormous burden an inner joy of having seen of having experienced that which no which does not oppress our life situation is oppressed we are oppressed by that what we need to do that we want to achieve that we want to get that we don't want to get the conditions have to be right for us to continue living so we are oppressed that's our dukkha and this oppression completely eliminated that moment and therefore this enormous feeling of relief that's a fruit moment now that is what is called stream entry the first moment of seeing Nibbana for oneself and seeing Nibbana is a the words are not indicative it is a the experience which I have just described one doesn't see now a beautiful landscape across on the other side of the river or anything like that nothing at all it's nothing of that sort it's just letting go of the oppression for one mind moment but it's such a strong impact on the psyche that one is never the same again that moment makes one an Arya a noble one whereas before that moment one has been a Puttajana, a worldling a worldling who still thinks that the world's got something to offer it seems like that doesn't as if it had something to offer but it doesn't it really doesn't so the whole pathway leads to that now stream entry I will explain in the four aspects tonight but there's one more um, step I hope your bookkeeping is alright are you come to number 12 now oh no no you should have number 12 now now comes number 13 <laughs> well you missed something let me see what you missed I'll make it desire for deliverance is number 9 this passion is 10 Compounded, conditioned, 11. 
12 non-occurrence non-clinging Nibbana number 12 so what did you miss? Compounded condition. Ah, compounded condition. The most important one. <laughs> You've got to know it's compounded and conditioned, otherwise you won't. You want to keep it. Okay, number twelve. So now comes number thirteen, right? And thirteen is called reviewing knowledge. And anyone except the arahant will do that automatically. And we were, and this is not unimportant because it has uh, application to anyone, not just to a stream enter. After having settled down to having had that experience and recognizing it for what it is, the mind reviews which of the fetters, which of the defilements have I lost, or have I lost any, and which ones are there to still work on. In other words, the mind may not immediately do that, but it will get to that point of checking it, itself out. Now, unfortunately, one doesn't lose much defilements with a stream entry, but anyway, I'll explain that tonight. But one loses something, and, uh, which is also very important. So one checks oneself out and sees exactly what needs to be done, this reviewing knowledge. Now, this reviewing knowledge is also important for anyone who practices. Checking out whether any of the defilements are less, whether one has seen any more, which is different to what one has seen before, any insights. Seeing what are the primary defilements which need to be attended to, it's called reviewing knowledge. It's not a personal blame system or getting, a, a, you know, disliking oneself it's reviewing knowledge it's knowledge about oneself that has to be absolutely clear in one's mind that this is knowledge this is not anything that has to do with hate or or making oneself small or inferiority complexes nothing of the sort it's seeing oneself objectively clearly and any practitioner who is really serious about practice will do this maybe not all the time but very automatically and there is also a stage where a person further back stage where they can only see the bad things about themselves that is at the time when the uh, uh, fear arises that's when they can see only bad things about themselves and then when the fear goes then some of that also goes because we all have both sides we have the good and the evil roots within so this is the 13th step the reviewing knowledge which when there is the arahant is then abandoned the arahant doesn't have to do that anymore he knows he or she knows nothing left to do and uh, the others have to uh, reflect and this everybody has to do it's a very good practice to reflect so you've got the whole path starting with mind and body are two they have distinction between them up to Nibbana all the way so any questions yes 
Well, there was this preliminary and after the actual step, it means that the preliminary concerns the body and the actual one the mind. No. The preliminary step is the willingness to give oneself up. That willingness of, of knowing that there is nothing here that needs to be clung to or hung, uh, hung, uh, c- connected to. That's this willingness in the mind. The mind has to be willing. So the, the uh, simile, the picture that is uh, in, the, in the commentaries uh, is that to do this sort of thing as if one is, you know, using a rope and letting go of this rope. But I was using a different picture of drowning in the uh, um, primordial ocean, for instance. Drowning. Being willing to drown. These are all the preliminary steps. It's absolutely essential to have those steps, otherwise the willingness isn't there. And then when that is there, the mind is well prepared. It's not just body, it's the mind is well prepared to have that still point and recognize it for what it is. Now, not everybody has to do these preliminary steps. Most people should do them. It makes it much easier. Now, the person who is experiencing the dispassion sounds to me like a once return in even-mindedness. <laughs> not, not sure. Great grief and hate. Uh, yes, but that's absolutely necessary in order to uh, get to these points the uh, once returner still has uh, greed and hate but it's diminished it's a non-returner hasn't got any um, the dispassion is only perfect for the arahant and, um, yes for the arahant only perfect but it is, a, an un, it is already the preliminary steps are all necessary in order to get to the first step to the stream entry yeah mm-hmm. yes if there is no dispassion, the world is too interesting. Why should one want to go to Nibbana? I mean, the mind doesn't want to do that. You know, how boring, you know, how tedious, or why should I want to do this? If the world still promises a lot. Now, complete dispassion, quite rightly, is only for the uh, for the Arahant. Complete. And also this, the whole, this um, complete mindfulness is only for the Arahant. But we can certainly make a stab at it. So what else? Yeah. And the reviewing in the mind bar is, is I found just in this last sit that I had uh, incredibly helpful because it gets you in touch with it did get me in touch with a lot of anger uh, of which I was totally unaware because I was going outward all the time and still blaming the trigger for so many different things that were irritating me. Um, during the day I could see these irritations arising and still going out all the time and forgetting over and over and over because my mindfulness wasn't good enough to look in. But when I sat and went over it and looked at the irritations, I could see straight away that the irritations were there simply because that anger or, um, yes, anger was simply a manifestation of my nature, that it was me. Mm. And that the anger was just simply a part of myself that I hadn't come to terms with, and that I was really pushing down and trying to hide. And so I really was able to look at it in a way that I couldn't have done if my mind hadn't been so constantly. Mm. 
that's quite true um, now anger as I said before only completely uh, vanishes for the non-returner the uh, stream enterer hasn't touched it and the once returner has diminished it so um, what to say of people who haven't even started practicing yet I mean you know the world is full of hate and anger so if one sees these things in oneself one can start in your case as you said you saw that the triggers were doing that you can look at the trigger and see that the trigger isn't worthwhile getting uh, angry about you know not to try to uh, attack the anger because that's like I hate war you know um, it's better to, uh, to look at the trigger and see it for what it is impermanent uh, conditioned compounded uh, whatever it may be everything is I mean if it's a noisy car or whether it's a noisy person whatever it is it all applies you know so using that but the irritation arises all the way to the um, including the one's returner but one doesn't have to get angry about the irritation Irritation is a mental state or emotional state, right? But if it has arisen, there's no need to get angry. Is that one then looks at the trigger and says, what is there? One can see it cease again. So irritation is one thing, but getting angry is another. Were you able to see the, the, the two? Yeah. The irritation arises all the way until non-return. That's the last step before fully enlightened. So we'll do that in, probably in the next course. Huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very um, easy outside of meditation to kid yourself uh, about the amount of irritation that you have in the mind. During meditation, it's much less, uh, it becomes very obvious mm. if it's there. It's very easy to see um, because there's so little else going on. <laughs> yes, well, as one becomes um, habituated to the introspection, one can see it as a habitual introspection, um, in spite of everything that's going on. Naturally, if you have to run after a train, well, I suppose that the only thing you're thinking of, can I run fast enough? But usually that doesn't happen, that's an outside occurrence during daily life if one is habitually introspective to one's own uh, reactions one can see the irritations and they become less and less uh, important because you can see them arising and ceasing and as they cease you they they make less of an impact so the mind loses them more doesn't happen so often it's like like um, um, because you've seen them so many times uh, and let go of them so many times they don't have such a strength so anything else? Uh, the irritation is a mind state uh, a mental, mental emotional state mental. yeah you can call it either mental state or emotional mental state, state. Yeah. but if you don't get angry it's just mental state not yeah. emotions no, no don't make a difference between that Mental emotional states is the third foundation of mindfulness. So you can call irritation an emotion. But if you then, from that irritation, 
start thinking, I hate that person. I can't stand him. He's got to get out of my life. Then you got angry and then you have mental content. Now, everybody who is not a non-returner will have irritation. Everybody. But the practitioner knows not to let that um, grow into real anger. Or the other way around, uh, the Zaha arises. Right? Okay. And the next step after that is, I must have that. I must have him. I must have her. If I can't get him, I'll be extremely angry. I mean, that's all mental content, force foundation of mindfulness. But the desire which arises, if you see it arising and ceasing, it hasn't done much harm. So that's mental emotional state. So getting angry means that the mind is actually doing something already. And then, of course, the next thing is that one says something. And then the next thing is that one does something. Is that clear, the difference? Because for someone who is not a non-returner, um, those things will arise. Desire and irritation are mild forms of greed and hate. And actually the once-returner still has mild forms of greed and hate. And that's twice having experienced Nibbana. So what to say about people who don't even know that Nibbana exists or that haven't got anywhere near that? So greed and hate are the strong forms. And they usually, are, because they arise in that strong form as a mental emotional state, they usually have with it immediately the mind content of saying, I must have this, or I must get rid of this. This is terrible. I hate him. I hate her. I want him. I want her. But in a mild form, the arising can be watched and the ceasing can be watched. It doesn't have to be the mental content. It doesn't have to um, develop into anything. And if one is mindful, means introspective, one is going to make sure it doesn't develop into, into anything. Because when it develops into anything at all, one usually doesn't make just oneself unhappy, one makes some other people with it unhappy. And the less it develops, the more purity is there. And the purity which is in a person is, um, well, I don't want to say it's catching, because that would, <laughs> that would be wishful thinking, but it certainly has, an, has an, an influence, because we are influenced by the people that we are with. So the influence of a person with purity is very um, marked on the people around them. And so we can be that kind of person and let, letting the irritation come and let it go without getting angry and having that whole scenario then happening and then of course the trouble is that one believes it one believes that whole story this is the worst of it you know after the irritation which is based on whatever then the story in the mind is, is the truth then and that's the worst of it so with mindfulness, we can certainly have an a easier time of it. Clear? All clear? Yes? I'm still not quite clear on The irritation, mindfulness of the irritation is mindfulness of 
the mental emotional state of the time. Then if that irritation is succeeded by anger, mindfulness of the anger is also mindfulness of mental emotional state. If the anger is succeeded by thoughts, mm-hmm. hate that person, then that is mindfulness of mental content. And then one is usually lost in it because one believes it. Then the whole thing is, then usually one has lost that round and has to start a new one. <laughs> but it, again, that's the way human beings are. And that's, there's no blame attached, it's just a recognition of the fact that it is possible to be otherwise because we have moments when we are otherwise. When, for instance, now in your meditation, Brian, when you saw this irritation thing happening, you weren't getting angry, were you? No. Well, there you are. But I was, I was getting um, not concentrated, so I realized that there had to be a reason for it. And when I looked to see why I wasn't getting concentrated, it was because of the irritation. Yes. And not at that stage being able to look at it properly and mm. go of it. And when I was able to see it in its right perspective that the irritation was there because I wasn't admitting to myself that it was there. I was really mm. trying to pretend. Which, which is an interesting thing with pain. If you, for me, it's quite amusing because I find sometimes when I've got very severe pain I'll decide that I'll attack it with impermanence. And it's quite ridiculous because I can look at the pain and I can be actually willing it to go away and saying, now you're impermanent, go away, you know, and it doesn't take the slightest bit. But you're not attacking it with impermanence, you're attacking it with dislike. But the mind is, as you say, so convoluted and it decides of its own court, you know, impermanently, I much use that. And we look at it, oh, I look at it and try and say, now this pain's impermanent, I'm going to make it go away. Yeah. Um, it, there's a way it does work um, the recognition of the pain being impermanent is fine that's fine the willing it to go away no, that doesn't work but the acceptance of the pain as, some, as an unpleasant feeling that's all it is an unpleasant feeling not going any further than that and recognizing that if there is a total relaxing into that acceptance, it probably will go away. And that does work, you know. But wanting it to go away, that makes it worse. That, that's making one's fist like that, and that makes it really bad. But flowing with it, yeah. Oh, sure, the mind can do anything. It's, it's great. But as you were experiencing irritation, and then you didn't start blaming whatever irritated you, but you could see there was a trigger, but you didn't start blaming. So that is seeing the irritation and accepting it and letting it go. But if you then had become angry about whatever it was that got you irritated, then you would have gone the next step. And then, of course, your meditation would have been completely shut. So we can do it. And if there is a higher threshold...